This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 11 Various and conflicting were the thoughts which oppressed me during the silent hours that followed the events related in the preceding chapter. Toby, wearied with the fatigues of the day, slumbered heavily by my side, but the pain under which I was suffering effectually prevented my sleeping, and I remained distressingly alive to all the fearful circumstances of our present situation. Was it possible that after all our vicissitudes, we were really in the terrible valley of Taipee, and at the mercy of its inmates, a fierce and unrelenting tribe of savages? Taipee or Hapar. I shuddered when I reflected that there was no longer any room for doubt, and that, beyond all hope of escape, we were now placed in those very circumstances from the bare thought of which I had recoiled with such abhorrence but a few days before. What might not be our fearful destiny? To be sure, as yet we had been treated with no violence, nay, had been even kindly and hospitably entertained. But what dependence could be placed upon the fickle passions which sway the bosom of a savage? His inconstancy and treachery are proverbial. Might it not be that beneath these fair appearances the islanders covered some perfidious design, and that their friendly reception of us might only precede some horrible catastrophe? How strongly did these forebodings spring up in my mind, as I lay restlessly upon a couch of mats, surrounded by the dimly revealed forms of those whom I so greatly dreaded. From the excitement of these fearful thoughts, I sank towards morning into an uneasy slumber, and on awaking with a start, in the midst of an appalling dream, looked up into the eager countenances of a number of the natives, who were bending over me. It was broad day, and the house was nearly filled with young females, fancifully decorated with flowers, who gazed upon me as I rose, with faces in which childish delight and curiosity were vividly portrayed. After waking Toby, they seated themselves round us on the mats, and gave full play to that prying inquisitiveness which time out of mind has been attributed to the adorable sex. As these unsophisticated young creatures were attended by no jealous duennas, their proceedings were altogether informal, and void of artificial restraint. Long and minute was the investigation with which they honored us, and so uproarious their mirth that I felt infinitely sheepish, and Toby was immeasurably outraged at their familiarity. These lively young ladies were at the same time wonderfully polite and humane, fanning aside the insects that occasionally lighted on our brows, presenting us with food, and compassionately regarding me in the midst of my afflictions. But in spite of all their blandishments, my feelings of propriety were exceedingly shocked, for I could not but consider them as having overstepped the due limits of female decorum. Having diverted themselves to their heart's content, our young visitants now withdrew, and gave place to successive troops of the other sex, who continued flocking towards the house until near noon, by which time I have no doubt that the greater part of the inhabitants of the valley had bathed themselves in the light of our benignant countenances. 
At last, when their numbers began to diminish, a superb-looking warrior stooped the towering plumes of his headdress beneath the low portal, and entered the house. I saw at once that he was some distinguished personage, the natives regarding him with the utmost deference, and making room for him as he approached. His aspect was imposing. The splendid, long, drooping tail-feathers of the tropical bird, thickly interspersed with the gaudy plumage of the cock, were disposed in an immense upright semicircle upon his head, their lower extremities being fixed in a crescent of guinea beads which spanned the forehead. Around his neck were several enormous necklaces of boar's tusks, polished like ivory, and disposed in such a manner as that the longest and largest were upon his capacious chest. Thrust forward through the large apertures in his ears were two small and finely shaped sperm-whale teeth, presenting their cavities in front, stuffed with freshly plucked leaves, and curiously wrought at the other end into strange little images and devices. These barbaric trinkets, garnished in this manner at their open extremities, and tapering and curving round to a point behind the ear, resembled not a little a pair of cornucopias. The loins of the warrior were girt about with heavy folds of a dark-colored tapa, hanging before and behind in clusters of braided tassels, while anklets and bracelets of curling human hair completed his unique costume. In his right hand he grasped a beautifully carved paddle-spear, nearly fifteen feet in length, made of the bright core wood, one end sharply pointed, and the other flattened like an oar-blade. Hanging obliquely from his girdle by a loop of sinate was a richly decorated pipe. The slender reed forming its stem was colored with a red pigment, and round it, as well as the idol bowl, fluttered little streamers of the thinnest tapa. But that which was most remarkable in the appearance of the splendid islander was the elaborated tattooing displayed on every noble limb. All imaginable lines and curves and figures were delineated over his whole body, and in their grotesque variety and infinite profusion, I could only compare them to the crowded groupings of quaint patterns we sometimes see in costly pieces of lacework. The most simple and remarkable of all these ornaments was that which decorated the countenance of the chief. Two broad stripes of tattooing, diverging from the center of his shaven crown, obliquely crossed both eyes, staining the lids, to a little below either ear, where they united with another stripe which swept in a straight line along the lips and formed the base of the triangle. The warrior, from the excellence of his physical proportions, might certainly have been regarded as one of nature's noblemen, and the lines drawn upon his face may possibly have denoted his exalted rank. This warlike personage, upon entering the house, seated himself at some distance from the spot where Toby and myself reposed, while the rest of the savages looked alternately from us to him, as if in expectation of something they were disappointed in not perceiving. Regarding the chief attentively, I thought his lineaments appeared familiar to me. As soon as his full face was turned upon me, and I again beheld its extraordinary embellishment, and met the strange gaze to which I had been subjected the preceding night, I immediately, in spite of the alteration in his appearance, recognized the noble Mahavi. On addressing him, he advanced at once in the most cordial manner, and, greeting me warmly, 
seemed to enjoy not a little the effect his barbaric costume had produced upon me. I forthwith determined to secure, if possible, the good will of this individual, as I easily perceived he was a man of great authority in his tribe, and one who might exert a powerful influence upon our subsequent fate. In the endeavor I was not repulsed, for nothing could surpass the friendliness he manifested towards both my companion and myself. He extended his sturdy limbs by our side, and endeavored to make us comprehend the full extent of the kindly feelings by which he was actuated. The almost insuperable difficulty in communicating to one another our ideas affected the chief with no little mortification. He evinced a great desire to be enlightened with regard to the customs and peculiarities of the far-off country we had left behind us, and to which, under the name of Manika, he frequently alluded. But that which more than any other subject engaged his attention was the late proceedings of the Frani, as he called the French, in the neighboring bay of Nukahiva. This seemed a never-ending theme with him, and one concerning which he was never weary of interrogating us. All the information we succeeded in imparting to him on this subject was little more than that we had seen six men of war lying in the hostile bay at the time we had left it. When he received this intelligence, Mahavi, by the aid of his fingers, went through a long numerical calculation, as if estimating the number of Frenchmen the squadron might contain. It was just after employing his faculties in this way that he happened to notice the swelling in my limb. He immediately examined it with the utmost attention, and after doing so dispatched a boy who happened to be standing by with some message. After the lapse of a few moments, the stripling re-entered the house with an aged islander, who might have been taken for old Hippocrates himself. His head was as bald as the polished surface of a coconut shell, which article it precisely resembled in smoothness and color, while a long silvery beard swept almost to his girdle of bark. Encircling his temples was a bandeau of the twisted leaves of the omu tree, pressed closely over the brows to shield his feeble vision from the glare of the sun. His tottering steps were supported by a long, slim staff, resembling the wand with which a theatrical magician appears on the stage, and in one hand he carried a freshly plated fan of the green leaflets of the coconut tree. A flowing robe of tapa, knotted over the shoulder, hung loosely round his stooping form, and heightened the venerableness of his aspect. Mahavi, saluting this old gentleman, motioned him to a seat between us, and then uncovering my limb desired him to examine it. The leech gazed intently from me to Toby, and then proceeded to business. After diligently observing the ailing member, he commenced manipulating it, and on the supposition probably that the complaint had deprived the leg of all sensation, began to pinch and hammer it in such a manner that I absolutely roared with the pain. Thinking that I was as capable of making an application of thumps and pinches to the part as anyone else, I endeavored to resist this species of medical treatment. But it was not so easy a matter to get out of the clutches of the old wizard. He fastened on the unfortunate limb as if it were something for which he had been long seeking, and muttering some kind of incantation continued his discipline, pounding it after a fashion that set me well-nigh crazy, while Mahavi, upon the same principle which prompts an affectionate mother to hold a struggling child in a dentist's chair, restrained me in his powerful grasp, 
and actually encouraged the wretch in this infliction of torture. Almost frantic with rage and pain, I yelled like a bedlamite, while Toby, throwing himself into all the attitudes of a posture-master, vainly endeavored to expostulate with the natives by signs and gestures. To have looked at my companion, as, sympathizing with my sufferings, he strove to put an end to them, one would have thought that he was the deaf and dumb alphabet incarnated. Whether my tormentor yielded to Toby's entreaties, or paused from sheer exhaustion, I do not know. But all at once he ceased his operations, and at the same time, the chief relinquishing his hold upon me, I fell back, faint and breathless, with the agony I had endured. My unfortunate limb was now left much in the same condition as a rump-steak after undergoing the castigating process which precedes cooking. My physician, having recovered from the fatigues of his exertions, as if anxious to make amends for the pain to which he had subjected me, now took some herbs out of a little wallet that was suspended from his waist, and moistening them in water, applied them to the inflamed part, stooping over it at the same time, and either whispering a spell, or having a little confidential chat with some imaginary demon located in the calf of my leg. My limb was now swathed in leafy bandages, and grateful to Providence for the cessation of hostilities, I was suffered to rest. Mahavy shortly after rose to depart, but before he went, he spoke authoritatively to one of the natives whom he addressed as Cory Cory, and from the little I could understand of what took place, pointed him out to me as a man whose peculiar business thenceforth would be to attend upon my person. I am not certain that I comprehended as much as this at the time, but the subsequent conduct of my trusty body-servant fully assured me that such must have been the case. I could not but be amused at the manner in which the chief addressed me upon this occasion, talking to me for at least fifteen or twenty minutes as calmly as if I could understand every word that he said. I remarked this peculiarity very often afterwards in many other of the islanders. Mahavy having now departed, and the family physician having likewise made his exit, we were left about sunset with the ten or twelve natives, who by this time I had ascertained composed the household of which Toby and I were members. As the dwelling to which we had been first introduced was the place of my permanent abode while I remained in the valley, and as I was necessarily placed upon the most intimate footing with its occupants, I may as well here enter into a little description of it and its inhabitants. This description will apply also to nearly all the other dwelling places in the vale, and will furnish some idea of the generality of the natives. Near one side of the valley, and about midway up the ascent of a rather abrupt rise of ground, waving with the richest verdure, a number of large stones were laid in successive courses, to the height of nearly eight feet, and disposed in such a manner that their level surface corresponded in shape with the habitation which was perched upon it. A narrow space, however, was reserved in front of the dwelling, upon the summit of this pile of stones, called by the natives a pee which being enclosed by a little picket of canes, gave it somewhat the appearance of a veranda. The frame of the house was constructed of large bamboos planted uprightly, and secured together at intervals by transverse stalks of the light wood of the hibiscus, lashed with thongs of bark. The rear of the tenement, built up with successive ranges of coconut boughs bound one upon another, with their leaflets cunningly woven together, inclined a little from the vertical, 
and extended from the extreme edge of the pipi to about twenty feet from its surface, whence the shelving roof, thatched with the long tapering leaves of the palmetto, sloped steeply off to within about five feet of the floor, leaving the eaves drooping with tassel-like appendages over the front of the habitation. This was constructed of light and elegant canes, in a kind of open screenwork, tastefully adorned with bindings of variegated sinate, which served to hold together its various parts. The sides of the house were similarly built, thus presenting three quarters for the circulation of the air, while the whole was impervious to the rain. In length, this picturesque building was perhaps twelve yards, while in breadth it could not have exceeded as many feet. So much for the exterior, which, with its wire-like reed-twisted sides, not a little reminded me of an immense aviary. Stooping a little, you passed through a narrow aperture in its front, and facing you on entering, lay two long, perfectly straight and well-polished trunks of the coconut tree, extending the full length of the dwelling, one of them placed closely against the rear, and the other lying parallel with it some two yards distant, the interval between them being spread with a multitude of gaily worked mats, nearly all of a different pattern. This space formed the common couch and lounging place of the natives, answering the purpose of a divan in oriental countries. Here would they slumber through the hours of the night, and recline luxuriously during the greater part of the day. The remainder of the floor presented only the cool, shining surfaces of the large stones of which the PP was composed. From the ridge pole of the house hung suspended a number of large packages enveloped in coarse tapa, some of which contained festival dresses and various other matters of the wardrobe held in high estimation. These were easily accessible by means of a line, which, passing over the ridge pole, had one end attached to a bundle, while with the other, which led to the side of the dwelling and was there secured, the package could be lowered or elevated at pleasure. Against the farther wall of the house were arranged in tasteful figures a variety of spears and javelins, and other implements of savage warfare. Outside of the habitation, and built upon the piazza-like area in its front, was a little shed, used as a sort of larder or pantry, and in which were stored various articles of domestic use and convenience. A few yards from the pee was a large shed built of coconut boughs, where the process of preparing the poey poey was carried on, and all culinary operations attended to. Thus much for the house and its appurtenances, and it will be readily acknowledged that a more commodious and appropriate dwelling for the climate and the people could not possibly be devised. It was cool, free to admit the air, scrupulously clean, and elevated above the dampness and impurities of the ground. But now to sketch the inmates, and here I claim for my tried servitor and faithful valet, Cory Cory, the precedence of a first description. As his character will be gradually unfolded in the course of my narrative, I shall for the present content myself with delineating his personal appearance. Cory Cory, though the most devoted and best-natured serving man in the world, was, alas, a hideous object to look upon. He was some twenty-five years of age, and about six feet in height, robust and well-made, and of the most extraordinary aspect. 
His head was carefully shaven, with the exception of two circular spots about the size of a dollar, near the top of the cranium, where the hair, permitted to grow of an amazing length, was twisted up in two prominent knots that gave him the appearance of being decorated with a pair of horns. His beard, plucked out by the roots from every other part of his face, was suffered to droop in hairy pendants, two of which garnished his upper lip, and an equal number hung from the extremity of his chin. Cory Cory, with a view of improving the handiwork of nature, and perhaps prompted by a desire to add to the engaging expression of his countenance, had seen fit to embellish his face with three broad longitudinal stripes of tattooing, which, like those country roads that go straight forward in defiance of all obstacles, crossed his nasal organ, descended into the hollow of his eyes, and even skirted the borders of his mouth. Each completely spanned his physiognomy, one extending in a line with his eyes, another crossing the face in the vicinity of the nose, and the third sweeping along his lips from ear to ear. His countenance, thus triply hooped, as it were, with tattooing, always reminded me of those unhappy wretches whom I have sometimes observed gazing out sentimentally from behind the grated bars of a prison window, whilst the entire body of my savage valet, covered all over with representations of birds and fishes, and a variety of most unaccountable-looking creatures, suggested to me the idea of a pictorial museum of natural history, or an illustrated copy of Goldsmith's Animated Nature. But it seems really heartless in me to write thus of the poor islander, when I owe perhaps to his unremitting attentions the very existence I now enjoy. Cory Cory, I mean thee no harm in what I say in regard to thy outward adornings, but they were a little curious to my unaccustomed sight, and therefore I dilate upon them. But to underrate or forget thy faithful services is something I could never be guilty of, even in the giddiest moment of my life. The father of my attached follower was a native of gigantic frame, and had once possessed prodigious physical powers. But the lofty form was now yielding to the inroads of time, though the hand of disease seemed never to have been laid upon the aged warrior. Marheyo, for such was his name, appeared to have retired from all active participation in the affairs of the valley, seldom or never accompanying the natives in their various expeditions, and employing the greater part of his time in throwing up a little shed just outside the house, upon which he was engaged to my certain knowledge for four months, without appearing to make any sensible advance. I suppose the old gentleman was in his dotage, for he manifested in various ways the characteristics which mark this particular stage of life. I remember in particular his having a choice pair of ear ornaments, fabricated from the teeth of some sea monster. These he would alternately wear and take off at least fifty times in the course of the day, going and coming from his little hut on each occasion with all the tranquility imaginable. Sometimes, slipping them through the slits in his ears, he would seize his spear, which in length and slightness resembled a fishing pole, and go stalking beneath the shadows of the neighboring groves, as if about to give a hostile meeting to some cannibal knight. But he would soon return again, and hiding his weapon under the projecting eaves of the house, and rolling his clumsy trinkets carefully in a piece of tapa, would resume his more pacific operations as quietly as if he had never interrupted them. 
But despite his eccentricities, Marheyo was a most paternal and warm-hearted old fellow, and in this particular not a little resembled his son Kori Kori. The mother of the latter was the mistress of the family, and a notable housewife, and a most industrious old lady she was. If she did not understand the art of making jellies, jams, custards, tea cakes, and such like trashy affairs, she was profoundly skilled in the mysteries of preparing amar, poi poi, and koku, with other substantial matters. She was a genuine busybody, bustling about the house like a country landlady at an unexpected arrival, forever giving the young girls tasks to perform, which the little hussies as often neglected, poking into every corner and rummaging over bundles of old tapa, or making a prodigious clatter among the calabashes. Sometimes she might have been seen squatting upon her haunches in front of a huge wooden basin, and kneading poey-poey with terrific vehemence, dashing the stone pestle about as if she would shiver the vessel into fragments. On other occasions, galloping about the valley in search of a particular kind of leaf, used in some of her recondite operations, and returning home, toiling and sweating, with a bundle under which most women would have sunk. To tell the truth, Cory Cory's mother was the only industrious person in all the valley of Taipei, and she could not have employed herself more actively had she been left an exceedingly muscular and destitute widow, with an inordinate supply of young children, in the bleakest part of the civilized world. There was not the slightest necessity for the greater portion of the labor performed by the old lady, but she seemed to work from some irresistible impulse her limbs continually swaying to and fro, as if there were some indefatigable engine concealed within her body which kept her in perpetual motion. Never suppose that she was a termagant or a shrew for all this. She had the kindliest heart in the world, and acted towards me in particular in a truly maternal manner, occasionally putting some little morsel of choice food into my hand, some outlandish kind of savage sweetmeat or pastry, like a doting mother petting a sickly urchin with tarts and sugar-plums. Warm indeed are my remembrances of the dear, good, affectionate old Tenor. Besides the individuals I have mentioned, there belonged to the household three young men, dissipated, good-for-nothing, roistering blades of savages, who were either employed in prosecuting love affairs with the maidens of the tribe, or grew boozy on arva and tobacco in the company of congenial spirits, the scapegraces of the valley. Among the permanent inmates of the house were likewise several lovely damsels, who instead of thrumming pianos and reading novels, like more enlightened young ladies, substituted for these employments the manufacture of a fine species of tapa, but for the greater portion of the time were skipping from house to house, gadding and gossiping with their acquaintances. From the rest of these, however, I must accept the beauteous nymph Feiway, who was my particular favorite. Her free, pliant figure was the very perfection of female grace and beauty. Her complexion was a rich and mantling olive, and when watching the glow upon her cheeks I could almost swear that beneath the transparent medium there lurked the blushes of a faint vermilion. The face of this girl was a rounded oval, and each feature as perfectly formed as the heart or imagination of man could desire. Her full lips, when parted with a smile, 
disclosed teeth of a dazzling whiteness, and when her rosy mouth opened with a burst of merriment, they looked like the milk-white seeds of the arta, a fruit of the valley, which when cleft in twain shows them reposing in rows on either side, embedded in the red and juicy pulp. Her hair of the deepest brown, parted irregularly in the middle, flowed in natural ringlets over her shoulders, and whenever she chanced to stoop, fell over and hid from view her lovely bosom. Gazing into the depths of her strange blue eyes, when she was in a contemplative mood, they seemed most placid, yet unfathomable, but when illuminated by some lively emotion, they beamed upon the beholder like stars. The hands of Fayaway were as soft and delicate of those of any countess, for an entire exemption from rude labor marks the girlhood and even prime of a typey woman's life. Her feet, though wholly exposed, were as diminutive and fairly shaped as those which peep from beneath the skirts of a Lima lady's dress. The skin of this young creature, from continual ablutions and the use of mollifying ointments, was inconceivably smooth and soft. I may succeed, perhaps, in particularizing some of the individual features of Fayaway's beauty, but that general loveliness of appearance which they all contributed to produce, I will not attempt to describe. The easy, unstudied graces of a child of nature like this, breathing from infancy an atmosphere of perpetual summer, and nurtured by the simple fruits of the earth, enjoying a perfect freedom from care and anxiety, and removed effectually from all injurious tendencies, strike the eye in a manner which cannot be portrayed. This picture is no fancy sketch. It is drawn from the most vivid recollections of the person delineated. Were I asked if the beauteous form of Fayaway was altogether free from the hideous blemish of tattooing, I should be constrained to answer that it was not. But the practitioners of this barbarous art, so remorseless in their inflictions upon the brawny limbs of the warriors of the tribe, seem to be conscious that it needs not the resources of their profession to augment the charms of the maidens of the vale. The females are very little embellished in this way, and Fayaway, with all the other young girls of her age, were even less so than those of their sex more advanced in years. The reason of this peculiarity will be alluded to hereafter. All the tattooing that the nymph in question exhibited upon her person may be easily described. Three minute dots, no bigger than pinheads, decorated either lip, and at a little distance were not at all discernible. Just upon the fall of the shoulder were drawn two parallel lines, half an inch apart, and perhaps three inches in length, the interval being filled with delicately executed figures. These narrow bands of tattooing thus placed always reminded me of those stripes of gold lace worn by officers in undress, and which are in lieu of epaulets to denote their rank. Thus much was Fayaway tattooed, the audacious hand which had gone so far in its desecrating work stopping short, apparently wanting the heart to proceed. But I have omitted to describe the dress worn by this nymph of the valley. Fayaway, I must avow the fact, for the most part clung to the primitive and summer garb of Eden. But how becoming the costume! It showed her fine figure to the best possible advantage, and nothing could have been better adapted to her peculiar style of beauty. 
On ordinary occasions, she was habited precisely as I have described the two youthful savages whom we had met on first entering the valley. At other times, when rambling among the groves, or visiting at the houses of her acquaintances, she wore a tunic of white tapa, reaching from her waist to a little below the knees, and when exposed for any length of time to the sun, she invariably protected herself from its rays by a floating mantle of the same material, loosely gathered about the person. Her gala dress will be described hereafter. As the beauties of our own land delight in bedecking themselves with fanciful articles of jewelry, suspending them from their ears, hanging them about their necks, and clasping them around their wrists, so Fayaway and her companions were in the habit of ornamenting themselves with similar appendages. Flora was their jeweler. Sometimes they wore necklaces of small carnation flowers, strung like rubies upon a fiber of tapa, or displayed in their ears a single white bud, the stem thrust backward through the aperture, and showing in front the delicate petals folded together in a beautiful sphere, and looking like a drop of the purest pearl. Chaplets, too, resembling in their arrangement the strawberry coronal worn by an English peeress, and composed of intertwined leaves and blossoms, often crowned their temples, and bracelets and anklets of the same tasteful pattern were frequently to be seen. Indeed, the maidens of the island were passionately fond of flowers, and never wearied of decorating their persons with them, a lovely trait in their character, and one that ere long will be more fully alluded to. Though in my eyes at least, Fayaway was indisputably the loveliest female I saw in Taipei, yet the description I have given of her will in some measure apply to nearly all the youthful portion of her sex in the valley. Judge ye then, reader, what beautiful creatures they must have been. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 12 When Mahavi had departed from the house, as related in the preceding chapter, Cory Cory commenced the functions of the post assigned him. He brought us various kinds of food, and, as if I were an infant, insisted upon feeding me with his own hands. To this procedure I, of course, most earnestly objected, but in vain, and having laid a calabash of koku before me, he washed his fingers in a vessel of water, and then putting his hand into the dish and rolling the food into little balls, put them one after another into my mouth. All my remonstrances against this measure only provoked so great a clamor on his part that I was obliged to acquiesce, and the operation of feeding being thus facilitated, the meal was quickly dispatched. As for Toby, he was allowed to help himself after his own fashion. The repast over, my attendant arranged the mats for repose, and, bidding me lie down, covered me with a large robe of tapa, at the same time looking approvingly upon me, and exclaiming, Kiki nui nui, ah, moi moi mortarki, eat plenty, ah, sleep very good. The philosophy of this sentiment I did not pretend to question, for deprived of sleep for several preceding nights, and the pain in my limb having much abated, I now felt inclined to avail myself of the opportunity afforded me. 
The next morning, on waking, I found Kory Kory stretched out on one side of me, while my companion lay upon the other. I felt sensibly refreshed after a night of sound repose, and immediately agreed to the proposition of my valet that I should repair to the water and wash, although dreading the suffering that the exertion might produce. From this apprehension, however, I was quickly relieved, for Kory Kory, leaping from the pee-pee and then backing himself up against it, like a porter in readiness to shoulder a trunk, with loud vociferations and a superabundance of gestures, gave me to understand that I was to mount upon his back, and be thus transported to the stream, which flowed perhaps two hundred yards from the house. Our appearance upon the veranda in front of the habitation drew together quite a crowd, who stood looking on and conversing with one another in the most animated manner. They reminded one of a group of idlers gathered about the door of a village tavern when the equipage of some distinguished traveller is brought round previous to his departure. As soon as I clasped my arms about the neck of the devoted fellow, and he jogged off with me, the crowd, composed chiefly of young girls and boys, followed after, shouting and capering with infinite glee, and accompanied us to the banks of the stream. On gaining it, Kori Kori, wading up to his hips in the water, carried me halfway across, and deposited me on a smooth black stone, which rose a few inches above the surface. The amphibious rabble at our heels plunged in after us, and climbing to the summit of the grass-grown rocks with which the bed of the brook was here and there broken, waited curiously to witness our morning ablutions. Somewhat embarrassed by the presence of the female portion of the company, and feeling my cheeks burning with bashful timidity, I formed a primitive basin by joining my hands together, and cooled my blushes in the water it contained, then removing my frock, bent over and washed myself down to my waist in the stream. As soon as Kori Kori comprehended from my motions that this was to be the extent of my performance, he appeared perfectly aghast with astonishment, and rushing towards me, poured out a torrent of words in eager deprecation of so limited an operation, enjoining me by unmistakable signs to immerse my whole body. To this I was forced to consent, and the honest fellow, regarding me as a froward, inexperienced child, whom it was his duty to serve at the risk of offending, lifted me from the rock, and tenderly bathed my limbs. This over, and resuming my seat, I could not avoid bursting into admiration of the scene around me. From the verdant surfaces of the large stones that lay scattered about, the natives were now sliding off into the water, diving and ducking beneath the surface in all directions, the young girls springing buoyantly into the air and revealing their naked forms to the waist, with their long tresses dancing about their shoulders, their eyes sparkling like drops of dew in the sun, and their gay laughter pealing forth at every frolicsome incident. On the afternoon of the day that I took my first bath in the valley, we received another visit from Mahavi. The noble savage seemed to be in the same pleasant mood, and was quite as cordial in his manner as before. After remaining about an hour, he rose from the mats, and motioning to leave the house, invited Toby and myself to accompany him, I pointed to my leg, but Mahavi in his turn pointed to Kori Kori and removed that objection. So, mounting upon the faithful fellow's shoulders again, like the old man of the sea astride of Sindbad, 
I followed after the chief. The nature of the route we now pursued struck me more forcibly than anything I had yet seen, as illustrating the indolent disposition of the islanders. The path was obviously the most beaten one in the valley, several others leading from either side into it, and perhaps for successive generations it had formed the principal avenue of the place. And yet, until I grew more familiar with its impediments, it seemed as difficult to travel as the recesses of a wilderness. Part of it swept round an abrupt rise of ground, the surface of which was broken by frequent inequalities, and thickly strewn with projecting masses of rocks, whose summits were often hidden from view by the drooping foliage of the luxuriant vegetation. Sometimes directly over, sometimes evading these obstacles with a wide circuit, the path wound along, one moment climbing over a sudden eminence smooth with continued wear, then descending on the other side into a steep glen and crossing the flinty channel of a brook. Here it pursued the depths of a glade, occasionally obliging you to stoop beneath vast horizontal branches, and now you stepped over huge trunks and boughs that lay rotting across the track. Such was the grand thoroughfare of Taipee. After proceeding a little distance along it, Cory Cory panting and blowing with the weight of his burden, I dismounted from his back, and grasping the long spear of Mahavi in my hand, assisted my steps over the numerous obstacles of the road, preferring this mode of advance to one which, from the difficulties of the way, was equally painful to myself and my wearied servitor. Our journey was soon at an end, for, scaling a sudden height, we came abruptly upon the place of our destination. I wish that it were possible to sketch in words this spot as vividly as I recollect it. Here were situated the taboo groves of the valley, the scene of many a prolonged feast, of many a horrid rite. Beneath the dark shadows of the consecrated breadfruit trees, there reigned a solemn twilight, a cathedral-like gloom. The frightful genius of pagan worship seemed to brood in silence over the place, breathing its spell upon every object around. Here and there, in the depths of these awful shades, half screened from sight by masses of overhanging foliage, rose the idolatrous altars of the savages, built of enormous blocks of black and polished stone, placed one upon another without cement to the height of twelve or fifteen feet, and surmounted by a rustic open temple, enclosed with a low picket of canes, within which might be seen in various stages of decay, offerings of breadfruit and coconuts, and the putrefying relics of some recent sacrifice. In the midst of the wood was the hallowed hula-hula ground, set apart for the celebration of the fantastic religious ritual of these people, comprising an extensive oblong pee-pee, terminating at either end in a lofty terraced altar, guarded by ranks of hideous wooden idols, and with the two remaining sides flanked by ranges of bamboo sheds, opening towards the interior of the quadrangle thus formed. Vast trees, standing in the middle of this space, and throwing over it an umbrageous shade, had their massive trunks built round with slight stages, elevated a few feet above the ground, and railed in with canes, forming so many rustic pulpits, from which the priests harangued their devotees. 
This holiest of spots was defended from profanation by the strictest edicts of the all-pervading taboo, which condemned to instant death the sacrilegious female who should enter or touch its sacred precincts, or even so much as press with her feet the ground made holy by the shadows that it cast. Access was had to the enclosure through an embowered entrance on one side, facing a number of towering coconut trees, planted at intervals along a level area of a hundred yards. At the further extremity of this space was to be seen a building of considerable size, reserved for the habitation of the priests and religious attendants of the groves. In its vicinity was another remarkable edifice, built as usual upon the summit of a pee-pee, and at least two hundred feet in length, though not more than twenty in breadth. The whole front of this latter structure was completely open, and from one end to the other ran a narrow veranda, fenced in on the edge of the pee-pee with a picket of canes. Its interior presented the appearance of an immense lounging place, the entire floor being strewn with successive layers of mats, lying between parallel trunks of coconut trees, selected for the purpose from the straightest and most symmetrical the vale afforded. To this building, denominated in the language of the natives the T, Mahavi now conducted us. Thus far we had been accompanied by a troop of the natives of both sexes, but as soon as we approached its vicinity, the females gradually separated themselves from the crowd, and standing aloof, permitted us to pass on. The merciless prohibitions of the taboo extended likewise to this edifice, and were enforced by the same dreadful penalty that secured the hula-hula ground from the imaginary pollution of a woman's presence. On entering the house, I was surprised to see six muskets ranged against the bamboo on one side, from the barrels of which depended as many small canvas pouches, partly filled with powder. Disposed about these muskets, like the cutlasses that decorate the bulkhead of a man-o'-war's cabin, were a great variety of rude spears and paddles, javelins and war-clubs. This, then, said I to Toby, must be the armory of the tribe. As we advanced further along the building, we were struck with the aspect of four or five hideous old wretches, on whose decrepit forms time and tattooing seemed to have obliterated every trace of humanity. Owing to the continued operation of this latter process, which only terminates among the warriors of the island after all the figures sketched upon their limbs in youth have been blended together, an effect, however, produced only in cases of extreme longevity, the bodies of these men were of a uniform, dull green color, the hue which the tattooing gradually assumes as the individual advances in age. Their skin had a frightful, scaly appearance, which, united with its singular color, made their limbs not a little resemble dusty specimens of verd antique. Their flesh, in parts, hung upon them in huge folds, like the overlapping plates on the flank of a rhinoceros. Their heads were completely bald, whilst their faces were puckered into a thousand wrinkles, and they presented no vestige of a beard. But the most remarkable peculiarity about them was the appearance of their feet. The toes, like the radiating lines of the mariner's compass, pointed to every quarter of the horizon. This was doubtless attributable to the fact that during nearly a hundred years of existence, 
the said toes never had been subjected to any artificial confinement, and in their old age, being averse to close neighborhood, bid one another keep open order. These repulsive-looking creatures appear to have lost the use of their lower limbs altogether, sitting upon the floor cross-legged in a state of torpor. They never heeded us in the least, scarcely looking conscious of our presence, while Mahavi seated us upon the mats, and Cory Cory gave utterance to some unintelligible gibberish. In a few moments a boy entered with a wooden trencher of poey poey, and in regaling myself with its contents I was obliged again to submit to the officious intervention of my indefatigable servitor. Various other dishes followed, the chief manifesting the most hospitable importunity in pressing us to partake, and to remove all bashfulness on our part, set us no despicable example in his own person. The repast concluded, a pipe was lighted, which passed from mouth to mouth, and yielding to its soporific influence, the quiet of the place, and the deepening shadows of approaching night, my companion and I sank into a kind of drowsy repose, while the chief and Cory Cory seemed to be slumbering beside us. I awoke from an uneasy nap, about midnight as I supposed, and raising myself partly from the mat, became sensible that we were enveloped in utter darkness. Toby lay still asleep, but our late companions had disappeared. The only sound that interrupted the silence of the place was the asthmatic breathing of the old man I have mentioned, who reposed at a little distance from us. Beside them, as well as I could judge, there was no one else in the house. Apprehensive of some evil, I roused my comrade, and we were engaged in a whispered conference concerning the unexpected withdrawal of the natives, when all at once, from the depths of the grove, in full view of us where we lay, shoots of flame were seen to rise, and in a few moments illuminated the surrounding trees, casting by contrast into still deeper gloom the darkness around us. While we continued gazing at this sight, dark figures appeared moving to and fro before the flames, while others, dancing and capering about, looked like so many demons. Regarding this new phenomenon with no small degree of trepidation, I said to my companion, What can all this mean, Toby? Oh, nothing, replied he. Getting the fire ready, I suppose. Fire? exclaimed I, while my heart took to beating like a trip hammer. What fire? Why, the fire to cook us, to be sure. What else would the cannibals be kicking up such a row about, if it were not for that? Oh, Toby, have done with your jokes. This is no time for them. Something is about to happen, I feel confident. Jokes, indeed, exclaimed Toby indignantly. Did you ever hear me joke? Why, for what do you suppose the devils have been feeding us up in this kind of style during the last three days? Unless it were for something that you are too much frightened at to talk about. Look at that Cory Cory there. Has he not been stuffing you with his confounded mushes just in the way they treat swine before they kill them? Depend upon it, we will be eaten this blessed night, and there is the fire we shall be roasted by. This view of the matter was not at all calculated to allay my apprehensions, and I shuddered when I reflected that we were indeed at the mercy of a tribe of cannibals, and that the dreadful contingency to which Toby had alluded was by no means removed beyond the bounds of possibility. There, I told you so, 
they are coming for us,' exclaimed my companion the next moment, as the forms of four of the islanders were seen in bold relief against the illuminated background, mounting the pee and approaching towards us. They came on noiselessly, nay, stealthily, and glided along through the gloom that surrounded us as if about to spring upon some object they were fearful of disturbing before they should make sure of it. Gracious heaven, the horrible reflections which crowded upon me that moment! A cold sweat stood upon my brow, and spellbound with terror I awaited my fate. Suddenly the silence was broken by the well-remembered tones of Mahavi, and at the kindly accents of his voice my fears were immediately dissipated. Tamo, Toby, Kiki, Eat. He had waited to address us until he had assured himself that we were both awake, at which he seemed somewhat surprised. Kiki, is it? said Toby in his gruff tones. Well, cook us first, will you? But what's this? he added, as another savage appeared, bearing before him a large trencher of wood, containing some kind of steaming meat, as appeared from the odors it diffused, and which he deposited at the feet of Mahavi. A baked baby, I dare say, but I will have none of it. Never mind what it is. A pretty fool I should make of myself indeed, waked up here in the middle of the night, stuffing and guzzling, and all to make a fat meal for a parcel of bloody-minded cannibals one of these mornings. No, I see what they are at very plainly, so I am resolved to starve myself into a bunch of bones and gristle, and then, if they serve me up, they are welcome. But I say, Tomo, you are not going to eat any of that mess there in the dark, are you? Why, how can you tell what it is? By tasting it, to be sure, said I, masticating a morsel that Cory Cory had just put in my mouth. And excellently good it is, too, very much like veal. A baked baby by the soul of Captain Cook, burst forth Toby with amazing vehemence. Veal? Why, there never was a calf on the island till you landed. I tell you, you are bolting down mouthfuls from a dead hapar's carcass, as sure as you live, and no mistake. Emetics and lukewarm water. What a sensation in the abdominal regions. Sure enough, where could the fiends incarnate have obtained meat? But I resolved to satisfy myself at all hazards. And turning to Mahavi, I soon made the ready chief understand that I wished a light to be brought. When the taper came, I gazed eagerly into the vessel, and recognized the mutilated remains of a juvenile porker. Puarki! exclaimed Kori Kori, looking complacently at the dish, and from that day to this I have never forgotten that such is the designation of a pig in the Taipei lingo. The next morning, after being again abundantly feasted by the hospitable Mahavi, Toby and myself arose to depart, but the chief requested us to postpone our intention. Abo, abo! Wait, wait, he said, and accordingly we resumed our seats while, assisted by the zealous Kori Kori, he appeared to be engaged in giving directions to a number of the natives outside, who were busily employed in making arrangements the nature of which we could not comprehend. But we were not left long in our ignorance, for a few moments only had elapsed when the chief beckoned us to approach, and we perceived that he had been marshalling a kind of guard of honor to escort us on our return to the house of Marheyo. The procession was led off by two venerable-looking savages, each provided with a spear, from the end of which streamed a pennon of milk-white tapa. 
After them went several youths, bearing aloft calabashes of poe-poe, and followed in their turn by four stalwart fellows sustaining long bamboos, from the tops of which hung suspended, at least twenty feet from the ground, large baskets of green breadfruit. Then came a troop of boys, carrying bunches of ripe bananas, and baskets made of the woven leaflets of coconut boughs, filled with the young fruit of the tree, the naked shells stripped of their husks peeping forth from the verdant wickerwork that surrounded them. Last of all came a burly islander, holding over his head a wooden trencher, in which lay disposed the remnants of our midnight feast, hidden from view, however, by a covering of breadfruit leaves. Astonished as I was at this exhibition, I could not avoid smiling at its grotesque appearance, and the associations it naturally called up. Mahavi, it seemed, was bent on replenishing old Marheyo's larder, fearful perhaps that without this precaution his guests might not fare as well as they could desire. As soon as I descended from the pipi, the procession formed anew, enclosing us in its center, where I remained part of the time, carried by Kori Kori, and occasionally relieving him from his burden by limping along with a spear. When we moved off in this order, the natives struck up a musical recitative, which, with various alternations, they continued until we arrived at the place of our destination. As we proceeded on our way, bands of young girls, darting from the surrounding groves, hung upon our skirts, and accompanied us with shouts of merriment and delight, which almost drowned the deep notes of the recitative. On approaching old Marheyo's domicile, its inmates rushed out to receive us, and while the gifts of Mahavi were being disposed of, the superannuated warrior did the honors of his mansion with all the warmth of hospitality evinced by an English squire when he regales his friends at some fine old patrimonial mansion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 13 Amidst these novel scenes, a week passed away almost imperceptibly. The natives, actuated by some mysterious impulse, day after day redoubled their attentions to us. Their manner towards us was unaccountable. Surely, thought I, they would not act thus if they meant us any harm. But why this excess of deferential kindness, or what equivalent can they imagine us capable of rendering them for it? We were fairly puzzled. But despite the apprehensions I could not dispel, the horrible character imputed to these Taipees appeared to me wholly undeserved. Why, they are cannibals, said Toby on one occasion when I eulogized the tribe. Granted, I replied but a more humane, gentlemanly, and amiable set of epicures do not probably exist in the Pacific. But notwithstanding the kind treatment we received, I was too familiar with the fickle disposition of savages not to feel anxious to withdraw from the valley, and put myself beyond the reach of that fearful death which, under all these smiling appearances, might yet menace us. But here there was an obstacle in the way of doing so. It was idle for me to think of moving from the place until I should have recovered from the severe lameness that afflicted me. Indeed, my malady began seriously to alarm me, 
for despite the herbal remedies of the natives, it continued to grow worse and worse. Their mild applications, though they soothed the pain, did not remove the disorder, and I felt convinced that without better aid I might anticipate long and acute suffering. But how was this aid to be procured? From the surgeons of the French fleet, which probably still lay in the Bay of Nukahiva, it might easily have been obtained, could I have made my case known to them. But how could that be effected? At last, in the exigency to which I was reduced, I proposed to Toby that he should endeavor to go round to Nukahiva, and if he could not succeed in returning to the valley by water, in one of the boats of the squadron, and taking me off, he might at least procure me some proper medicines, and effect his return overland. My companion listened to me in silence, and at first did not appear to relish the idea. The truth was, he felt impatient to escape from the place, and wished to avail himself of our present high favor with the natives, to make good our retreat, before we should experience some sudden alteration in their behavior. As he could not think of leaving me in my helpless condition, he implored me to be of good cheer, assured me that I should soon be better, and enabled in a few days to return with him to Nukahiva. Added to this, he could not bear the idea of again returning to this dangerous place, and as for the expectation of persuading the Frenchmen to detach a boat's crew for the purpose of rescuing me from the Taipees, he looked upon it as idle, and with arguments that I could not answer, urged the improbability of their provoking the hostilities of the clan by any such measure, especially as, for the purpose of quieting its apprehensions, they had as yet refrained from making any visit to the bay. And even should they consent, said Toby, they would only produce a commotion in the valley, in which we might both be sacrificed by these ferocious islanders. This was unanswerable but still I clung to the belief that he might succeed in accomplishing the other part of my plan, and at last I overcame his scruples, and he agreed to make the attempt. As soon as we succeeded in making the natives understand our intention, they broke out into the most vehement opposition to the measure, and for a while I almost despaired of obtaining their consent. At the bare thought of one of us leaving them, they manifested the most lively concern, the grief and consternation of Cory Cory in particular was unbounded. He threw himself into a perfect paroxysm of gestures, which were intended to convey to us not only his abhorrence of Nukahiva and its uncivilized inhabitants, but also his astonishment that after becoming acquainted with the enlightened Taipees, we should evince the least desire to withdraw, even for a time, from their agreeable society. However, I overbore his objections by appealing to my lameness, from which I assured the natives I should speedily recover, if Toby were permitted to obtain the supplies I needed. It was agreed that on the following morning my companion should depart, accompanied by some one or two of the household, who should point out to him an easy route, by which the bay might be reached before sunset. At early dawn of the next day, our habitation was astir, one of the young men mounted into an adjoining coconut tree, and threw down a number of the young fruit, which old Marheyo quickly stripped of the green husks, and strung together upon a short pole. These were intended to refresh Toby on his route. The preparations being completed, with no little emotion, I bade my companion adieu. He promised to return in three days at farthest, 
and, bidding me keep up my spirits in the interval, turned round the corner of the pipi, and, under the guidance of the venerable Marheyo, was soon out of sight. His departure oppressed me with melancholy, and, re-entering the dwelling, I threw myself almost in despair upon the matting of the floor. In two hours' time the old warrior returned, and gave me to understand that after accompanying my companion a little distance, and showing him the route, he had left him journeying on his way. It was about noon of this same day, a season which these people are wont to pass in sleep, that I lay in the house, surrounded by its slumbering inmates, and painfully affected by the strange silence which prevailed. All at once I thought I heard a faint shout, as if proceeding from some persons in the depth of the grove which extended in front of our habitation. The sounds grew louder and nearer, and gradually the whole valley rang with wild outcries. The sleepers around me started to their feet in alarm, and hurried outside to discover the cause of the commotion. Cory Cory, who had been the first to spring up, soon returned almost breathless and nearly frantic with the excitement under which he seemed to be laboring. All that I could understand from him was that some accident had happened to Toby. Apprehensive of some dreadful calamity, I rushed out of the house and caught sight of a tumultuous crowd, who, with shrieks and lamentations, were just emerging from the grove, bearing in their arms some object, the sight of which produced all this transport of sorrow. As they drew near, the men redoubled their cries, while the girls, tossing their bare arms in the air, exclaimed plaintively, Aoha! Aoha! Toby Mukimoi! Alas, alas! Toby is killed. In a moment, the crowd opened, and disclosed the apparently lifeless body of my companion borne between two men, the head hanging heavily against the breast of the foremost. The whole face, neck, and bosom were covered with blood, which still trickled slowly from a wound behind the temple. In the midst of the greatest uproar and confusion, the body was carried into the house and laid on a mat. Waving the natives off to give room and air, I bent eagerly over Toby, and laying my hand upon the breast, ascertained that the heart still beat. Overjoyed at this, I seized a calabash of water and dashed its contents upon his face. Then, wiping away the blood, anxiously examined the wound. It was about three inches long, and on removing the clotted hair from about it, showed the skull laid completely bare. Immediately with my knife I cut away the heavy locks, and bathed the part repeatedly in water. In a few moments Toby revived, and opening his eyes for a second, closed them again without speaking. Cory Cory, who had been kneeling beside me, now chafed his limbs gently with the palms of his hands, while a young girl at his head kept fanning him, and I still continued to moisten his lips and brow. Soon my poor comrade showed signs of animation, and I succeeded in making him swallow from a coconut shell a few mouthfuls of water. Old Tinor now appeared, holding in her hand some simples she had gathered, the juice of which she by signs besought me to squeeze into the wound. Having done so, I thought it best to leave Toby undisturbed, until he should have had time to rally his faculties. Several times he opened his lips, but fearful for his safety, I enjoined silence. In the course of two or three hours, however, 
he sat up, and was sufficiently recovered to tell me what had occurred. After leaving the house with Marheyo, said Toby, we struck across the valley and descended the opposite heights. Just beyond them, my guide informed me, lay the valley of Hapar, while along their summits and skirting the head of the vale was my route to Nukahiva. After mounting a little way up the elevation, my guide paused and gave me to understand that he could not accompany me any farther, and by various signs intimated that he was afraid to approach any nearer the territories of the enemies of his tribe. He, however, pointed out my path, which now lay clearly before me, and bidding me farewell, hastily descended the mountain. Quite elated at being so near the Hapars, I pushed up the acclivity, and soon gained its summit. It tapered up to a sharp ridge, from whence I beheld both the hostile valleys. Here I sat down and rested for a moment, refreshing myself with my coconuts. I was soon again pursuing my way along the height, when suddenly I saw three of the islanders, who must have just come out of Hapar Valley, standing in the path ahead of me. They were each armed with a heavy spear, and one from his appearance I took to be a chief. They sung out something, I could not understand what, and beckoned me to come on. Without the least hesitation I advanced towards them, and had approached within about a yard of the foremost, when pointing angrily into the Taipi Valley, and uttering some savage exclamation, he wheeled round his weapon like lightning, and struck me in a moment to the ground. The blow inflicted this wound, and took away my senses. As soon as I came to myself I perceived the three islanders standing a little distance off, and apparently engaged in some violent altercation respecting me. My first impulse was to run for it, but in endeavouring to rise I fell back, and rolled down a little grassy precipice. The shock seemed to rally my faculties, so starting to my feet I fled down the path I had just ascended. I had no need to look behind me, for from the yells I heard I knew that my enemies were in full pursuit. Urged on by their fearful outcries, and heedless of the injury I had received, though the blood flowing from the wound trickled over into my eyes and almost blinded me, I rushed down the mountainside with the speed of the wind. In a short time I had descended nearly a third of the distance, and the savages had ceased their cries, when suddenly a terrific howl burst upon my ear, and at the same moment a heavy javelin darted past me as I fled, and stuck quivering in a tree close to me. Another yell followed, and a second spear and a third shot through the air within a few feet of my body, both of them piercing the ground obliquely in advance of me. The fellows gave a roar of rage and disappointment, but they were afraid, I suppose, of coming down further into the Taipi Valley, and so abandoned the chase. I saw them recover their weapons and turn back, and I continued my descent as fast as I could. What could have caused this ferocious attack on the part of these hapars I could not imagine, unless it were that they had seen me ascending the mountain with Marheyo, and that the mere fact of coming from the Taipi Valley was sufficient to provoke them. As long as I was in danger I scarcely felt the wound I had received, but when the chase was over I began to suffer from it. I had lost my hat in my flight, and the sun scorched my bare head. I felt faint and giddy, but fearful of falling to the ground beyond the reach of assistance, I staggered on as well as I could, and at last gained the level of the valley, and then down I sunk, and I knew nothing more until I found myself lying upon these mats, and you stooping over me with a calabash of water. Such was Toby's account of this sad affair. I afterwards learned that fortunately he had fallen close to a spot where the natives go for fuel. A party of them caught sight of him as he fell, and sounding the alarm had lifted him up, and after ineffectually endeavouring to restore him at the brook, 
had hurried forward with him to the house. This incident threw a dark cloud over our prospects. It reminded us that we were hemmed in by hostile tribes, whose territories we could not hope to pass, on our route to Nukahiva, without encountering the effects of their savage resentment. There appeared to be no avenue opened to our escape but the sea, which washed the lower extremity of the vale. Our Taipei friends availed themselves of the recent disaster of Toby to exhort us to a due appreciation of the blessings we enjoyed among them, contrasting their own generous reception of us with the animosity of their neighbors. They likewise dwelt upon the cannibal propensities of the Hapars, a subject which they were perfectly aware could not fail to alarm us, while at the same time they earnestly disclaimed all participation in so horrid a custom. Nor did they omit to call upon us to admire the natural loveliness of their own abode, and the lavish abundance with which it produced all manner of luxuriant fruits, exalting it in this particular above any of the surrounding valleys. Kori Kori seemed to experience so heartfelt a desire to infuse into our minds proper views on these subjects, that, assisted in his endeavors by the little knowledge of the language we had acquired, he actually succeeded in making us comprehend a considerable part of what he said. To facilitate our correct apprehension of his meaning, he at first condensed his ideas into the smallest possible compass. Hepar kiki no nui! he exclaimed, Nui nui, kiki kanaka, ah, aule mutarki, which signifies, terrible fellows those hapars devour an amazing quantity of men, ah, shocking bad. Thus far he explained himself by a variety of gestures, during the performance of which he would dart out of the house and point abhorrently towards the hapar valley, running in to us again with a rapidity that showed he was fearful we would lose one part of his meaning before he could complete the other, and continuing his illustrations by seizing the fleshy part of my arm in his teeth, intimating by the operation that the people who lived over in that direction would like nothing better than to treat me in that manner. Having assured himself that we were fully enlightened on this point, he proceeded to another branch of his subject. Ah, Taipimotarki! Nui nui miori, nui nui wai, nui nui poi poi, nui nui koku, ah nui nui kiki, ah nui nui nui, which, liberally interpreted as before, would imply, ah, Taipei, isn't it a fine place though, no danger of starving here, I tell you, plenty of breadfruit, plenty of water, plenty of pudding, ah, plenty of everything, ah, heaps, heaps, heaps. All this was accompanied by a running commentary of signs and gestures which it was impossible not to comprehend. As he continued his harangue, however, Kori Kori, in emulation of our more polished orators, began to launch out rather diffusely into other branches of his subject, enlarging probably upon the moral reflections it suggested, and proceeded in such a strain of unintelligible and stunning gibberish that he actually gave me the headache for the rest of the day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 14 
In the course of a few days, Toby had recovered from the effects of his adventure with the Hapar warriors, the wound on his head rapidly healing under the vegetable treatment of the good Tenor. Less fortunate than my companion, however, I still continued to languish under a complaint the origin and nature of which were still a mystery. Cut off as I was from all intercourse with the civilized world, and feeling the inefficiency of anything the natives could do to relieve me, knowing too that so long as I remained in my present condition it would be impossible for me to leave the valley, whatever opportunity might present itself, and apprehensive that ere long we might be exposed to some caprice on the part of the islanders, I now gave up all hopes of recovery, and became a prey to the most gloomy thoughts. A deep dejection fell upon me, which neither the friendly remonstrances of my companion, the devoted attentions of Kori Kori, nor all the soothing influences of Fayaway could remove. One morning as I lay on the mats in the house, plunged in melancholy reverie, and regardless of everything around me, Toby, who had left me about an hour, returned in haste, and with great glee told me to cheer up and be of good heart, for he believed, from what was going on among the natives, that there were boats approaching the bay. These tidings operated upon me like magic. The hour of our deliverance was at hand, and starting up I was soon convinced that something unusual was about to occur. The word, Boti, Boti, was vociferated in all directions, and shouts were heard in the distance, at first feebly and faintly, but growing louder and nearer at each successive repetition, until they were caught up by a fellow in a coconut tree a few yards off, who, sounding them in turn, they were reiterated from a neighboring grove, and so died away gradually from point to point, as the intelligence penetrated into the farthest recesses of the valley. This was the vocal telegraph of the islanders, by means of which condensed items of information could be carried in a very few minutes from the sea to their remotest habitation, a distance of at least eight or nine miles. On the present occasion it was in active operation, one piece of information following another with inconceivable rapidity. The greatest commotion now appeared to prevail. At every fresh item of intelligence the natives betrayed the liveliest interest, and redoubled the energy with which they employed themselves in collecting fruit to sell to the expected visitors. Some were tearing off the husks from coconuts, some perched in the trees were throwing down breadfruit to their companions, who gathered them into heaps as they fell, while others were plying their fingers rapidly in weaving leafen baskets in which to carry the fruit. There were other matters, too, going on at the same time. Here you would see a stout warrior polishing his spear with a bit of old tapa, or adjusting the folds of the girdle about his waist, and there you might descry a young damsel decorating herself with flowers, as if having in her eyes some maidenly conquest, while, as in all cases of hurry and confusion in every part of the world, a number of individuals kept hurrying to and fro, with amazing vigor and perseverance, doing nothing themselves, and hindering others. Never before had we seen the islanders in such a state of bustle and excitement, and the scene furnished abundant evidence of the fact that it was only at long intervals any such events occur. When I thought of the length of time that might intervene before a similar chance of escape would be presented, I bitterly lamented that I had not the power of availing myself effectually of the present opportunity. 
From all that we could gather, it appeared that the natives were fearful of arriving too late upon the beach, unless they made extraordinary exertions. Sick and lame as I was, I would have started with Toby at once, had not Cory Cory not only refused to carry me, but manifested the most invincible repugnance to our leaving the neighborhood of the house. The rest of the savages were equally opposed to our wishes, and seemed grieved and astonished at the earnestness of my solicitations. I clearly perceived that while my attendant avoided all appearance of constraining my movements, he was nevertheless determined to thwart my wish. He seemed to me, on this particular occasion, as well as often afterwards, to be executing the orders of some other person with regard to me, though at the same time feeling towards me the most lively affection. Toby, who had made up his mind to accompany the islanders if possible, as soon as they were in readiness to depart, and who for that reason had refrained from showing the same anxiety that I had done, now represented to me that it was idle for me to entertain the hope of reaching the beach in time to profit by any opportunity that might then be presented. "'Do you not see?' said he. "'The savages themselves are fearful of being too late, and I should hurry forward myself at once. Did I not think that if I showed too much eagerness I should destroy all our hopes of reaping any benefit from this fortunate event?' If you will only endeavor to appear tranquil or unconcerned, you will quiet their suspicions, and I have no doubt they will then let me go with them to the beach, supposing that I merely go out of curiosity. Should I succeed in getting down to the boats, I will make known the condition in which I have left you, and measures may then be taken to secure our escape. In the expediency of this I could not but acquiesce, and as the natives had now completed their preparations, I watched with the liveliest interest the reception that Toby's application might meet with. As soon as they understood from my companion that I intended to remain, they appeared to make no objection to his proposition, and even hailed it with pleasure. Their singular conduct on this occasion not a little puzzled me at the time, and imparted to subsequent events an additional mystery. The islanders were now to be seen hurrying along the path which led to the sea, I shook Toby warmly by the hand, and gave him my peta hat to shield his wounded head from the sun, as he had lost his own. He cordially returned the pressure of my hand, and solemnly promising to return as soon as the boats should leave the shore, sprang from my side, and the next minute disappeared in a turn of the grove. In spite of the unpleasant reflections that crowded upon my mind, I could not but be entertained by the novel and animated sight which now met my view. One after another, the natives crowded along the narrow path, laden with every variety of fruit. Here you might have seen one, who, after ineffectually endeavoring to persuade a surly porker to be conducted in leading strings, was obliged at last to seize the perverse animal in his arms, and carry him struggling against his naked breast, and squealing without intermission. There went two, who, at a little distance, might have been taken for the Hebrew spies on their return to Moses with the goodly bunch of grapes. One trotted before the other at a distance of a couple of yards, while between them, from a pole resting on their shoulders, was suspended a huge cluster of bananas, which swayed to and fro with a rocking gait at which they proceeded. Here ran another, perspiring with his exertions, and bearing before him a quantity of coconuts, who, fearful of being too late, heeded not the fruit that dropped from his basket, and appeared solely intent upon reaching his destination, 
careless how many of his coconuts kept company with him. In a short time, the last straggler was seen hurrying on his way, and the faint shouts of those in advance died insensibly upon the ear. Our part of the valley now appeared nearly deserted by its inhabitants, Cory Cory, his aged father, and a few decrepit old people being all that were left. Towards sunset, the islanders in small parties began to return from the beach, and among them, as they drew near to the house, I sought to descry the form of my companion. But one after another they passed the dwelling, and I caught no glimpse of him. Supposing, however, that he would soon appear with some of the members of the household, I quieted my apprehensions, and waited patiently to see him advancing in company with the beautiful Fayaway. At last, I perceived Tinor coming forward, followed by the girls and young men who usually resided in the house of Marheyo. But with them came not my comrade, and, filled with a thousand alarms, I eagerly sought to discover the cause of his delay. My earnest questions appeared to embarrass the natives greatly. All their accounts were contradictory, one giving me to understand that Toby would be with me in a very short time, another that he did not know where he was, while a third, violently inveighing against him, assured me that he had stolen away and would never come back. It appeared to me at the time that in making these various statements they endeavored to conceal from me some terrible disaster lest the knowledge of it should overpower me. Fearful lest some fatal calamity had overtaken him, I sought out young Fayaway, and endeavored to learn from her, if possible, the truth. This gentle being had early attracted my regard, not only from her extraordinary beauty, but from the attractive cast of her countenance, singularly expressive of intelligence and humanity. Of all the natives, she alone seemed to appreciate the effect which the peculiarity of the circumstances in which we were placed had produced upon the minds of my companion and myself. In addressing me, especially when I lay reclining upon the mats, suffering from pain, there was a tenderness in her manner which it was impossible to misunderstand or resist. Whenever she entered the house, the expression of her face indicated the liveliest sympathy for me and moving towards the place where I lay, with one arm slightly elevated in a gesture of pity, and her large glistening eyes gazing intently into mine, she would murmur plaintively, Oha, oha, tamo, and seat herself mournfully beside me. Her manner convinced me that she deeply compassionated my situation, as being removed from my country and friends and placed beyond the reach of all relief. Indeed, at times I was almost led to believe that her mind was swayed by gentle impulses hardly to be anticipated from one in her condition, that she appeared to be conscious there were ties rudely severed, which had once bound us to our homes, that there were sisters and brothers anxiously looking forward to our return, who were, perhaps, never more to behold us. In this amiable light did Fayaway appear in my eyes, and reposing full confidence in her candor and intelligence, I now had recourse to her, in the midst of my alarm, with regard to my companion. My questions evidently distressed her. She looked round from one to another of the bystanders, as if hardly knowing what answer to give me. 
At last, yielding to my importunities, she overcame her scruples, and gave me to understand that Toby had gone away with the boats which had visited the bay, but had promised to return at the expiration of three days. At first I accused him of perfidiously deserting me, but as I grew more composed, I upbraided myself for imputing so cowardly an action to him, and tranquilized myself with the belief that he had availed himself of the opportunity to go round to Nukahiva, in order to make some arrangement by which I could be removed from the valley. At any rate, thought I, he will return with the medicines I require, and then, as soon as I recover, there will be no difficulty in the way of our departure. Consoling myself with these reflections, I lay down that night in a happier frame of mind than I had done for some time. The next day passed without any allusion to Toby on the part of the natives, who seemed desirous of avoiding all reference to the subject. This raised some apprehensions in my breast, but when night came, I congratulated myself that the second day had now gone by, and that on the morrow Toby would again be with me. But the morrow came and went, and my companion did not appear. Ah, thought I, he reckons three days from the morning of his departure. Tomorrow he will arrive. But that weary day also closed upon me, without his return. Even yet I would not despair. I thought that something detained him, that he was waiting for the sailing of a boat at Nukahiva, and that in a day or two at farthest I should see him again. But day after day of renewed disappointment passed by. At last hope deserted me, and I fell a victim to despair. Yes, thought I, gloomily, he has secured his own escape, and cares not what calamity may befall his unfortunate comrade. Fool that I was, to suppose that any one would willingly encounter the perils of this valley, after having once got beyond its limits. He has gone, and has left me to combat alone all the dangers by which I am surrounded. Thus would I sometimes seek to derive a desperate consolation from dwelling upon the perfidy of Toby, whilst at other times I sunk under the bitter remorse which I felt as having by my own imprudence brought upon myself the fate which I was sure awaited me. At other times I thought that perhaps after all these treacherous savages had made away with him, and thence the confusion into which they were thrown by my questions, and their contradictory answers, or he might be a captive in some other part of the valley, or, more dreadful still, might have met with that fate at which my very soul shuddered. But all these speculations were vain. No tidings of Toby ever reached me. He had gone, never to return. The conduct of the islanders appeared inexplicable. All reference to my lost comrade was carefully evaded, and if at any time they were forced to make some reply to my frequent inquiries on the subject, they would uniformly denounce him as an ungrateful runaway, who had deserted his friend, and taken himself off to that vile and detestable place, Nukahiva. But whatever might have been his fate, now that he was gone, the natives multiplied their acts of kindness and attention towards myself, treating me with a degree of deference which could hardly have been surpassed had I been some celestial visitant. 
Cory Cory never for one moment left my side, unless it were to execute my wishes. The faithful fellow, twice every day, in the cool of the morning and in the evening, insisted upon carrying me to the stream, and bathing me in its refreshing water. Frequently in the afternoon he would carry me to a particular part of the stream, where the beauty of the scene produced a soothing influence upon my mind. At this place the waters flowed between grassy banks, planted with enormous breadfruit trees, whose vast branches interlacing overhead formed a leafy canopy. Near the stream were several smooth black rocks. One of these, projecting several feet above the surface of the water, had upon its summit a shallow cavity, which, filled with freshly gathered leaves, formed a delightful couch. Here I often lay for hours, covered with a gauze-like veil of tapa, while Fayaway seated beside me, and holding in her hand a fan woven from the leaflets of a young coconut bough, brushed aside the insects that occasionally lighted on my face, and Cory Cory, with a view of chasing away my melancholy, performed a thousand antics in the water before us. As my eye wandered along this romantic stream, it would fall upon the half-immersed figure of a beautiful girl, standing in the transparent water, and catching in a little net a species of diminutive shellfish, of which these people are extravagantly fond. Sometimes a chattering group would be seated upon the edge of a low rock in the midst of the brook, busily engaged in thinning and polishing the shells of coconuts, by rubbing them briskly with a small stone in the water, an operation which soon converts them into a light and elegant drinking vessel, somewhat resembling goblets made of tortoiseshell. But the tranquilizing influences of beautiful scenery, and the exhibition of human life under so novel and charming an aspect, were not my only sources of consolation. Every evening the girls of the house gathered about me on the mats, and after chasing away Cory Cory from my side, who nevertheless retired only to a little distance, and watched their proceedings with the most jealous attention, would anoint my whole body with a fragrant oil, squeezed from a yellow root, previously pounded between a couple of stones, and which in their language is denominated Akka. And most refreshing and agreeable are the juices of the Akka, when applied to one's limbs by the soft palms of sweet nymphs, whose bright eyes are beaming upon you with kindness. And I used to hail with delight the daily recurrence of this luxurious operation, in which I forgot all my troubles, and buried for the time every feeling of sorrow. Sometimes in the cool of the evening my devoted servitor would lead me out upon the pee-pee in front of the house, and seating me near its edge, protect my body from the annoyances of the insects which occasionally hovered in the air, by wrapping me round with a large roll of tapa. He then bustled about, and employed himself at least twenty minutes in adjusting everything to secure my personal comfort. Having perfected his arrangements, he would get my pipe, and, lighting it, would hand it to me. Often he was obliged to strike a light for the occasion, and as the mode he adopted was entirely different from what I had ever seen or heard of before, I will describe it. A straight, dry, and partly decayed stick of the hibiscus, about six feet in length, and half as many inches in diameter, 
with a smaller bit of wood not more than a foot long, and scarcely an inch wide, is as invariably to be met with in every house in Taipee as a box of lucifer matches in the corner of a kitchen cupboard at home. The islander, placing the larger stick obliquely against some object, with one end elevated at an angle of forty-five degrees, mounts astride of it like an urchin about to gallop off upon a cane, and then, grasping the smaller one firmly in both hands, he rubs its pointed end slowly up and down the extent of a few inches on the principal stick, until at last he makes a narrow groove in the wood, with an abrupt termination at the point furthest from him, where all the dusty particles which the friction creates are accumulated in a little heap. At first, Cory Cory goes to work quite leisurely, but gradually quickens his pace, and waxing warm in the employment, drives the stick furiously along the smoking channel, plying his hands to and fro with amazing rapidity, the perspiration starting from every pore. As he approaches the climax of his effort, he pants and gasps for breath, and his eyes almost start from their sockets with the violence of his exertions. This is the critical stage of the operation. All his previous labors are vain if he cannot sustain the rapidity of the movement until the reluctant spark is produced. Suddenly, he stops, becomes perfectly motionless. His hands still retain their hold of the smaller stick, which is pressed convulsively against the further end of the channel among the fine powder there accumulated, as if he had just pierced through and through some little viper that was wriggling and struggling to escape from his clutches. The next moment, a delicate wreath of smoke curls spirally into the air. The heap of dusty particles glows with fire, and Cory Cory, almost breathless, dismounts from his steed. This operation appeared to me to be the most laborious species of work performed in Taipei, and had I possessed a sufficient intimacy with the language to have conveyed my ideas upon the subject, I should certainly have suggested to the most influential of the natives the expediency of establishing a college of vestals to be centrally located in the valley, for the purpose of keeping alive the indispensable article of fire, so as to supersede the necessity of such a vast outlay of strength and good temper as were usually squandered on these occasions. There might, however, be special difficulties in carrying this plan into execution. What a striking evidence does this operation furnish of the wide difference between the extreme of savage and civilized life. A gentleman of Taipei can bring up a numerous family of children, and give them all a highly respectable cannibal education, with infinitely less toil and anxiety than he expends in the simple process of striking a light. Whilst a poor European artisan, who, through the instrumentality of a lucifer, performs the same operation in one second, is put to his wit's end to provide for his starving offspring that food which the children of a Polynesian father, without troubling their parent, pluck from the branches of every tree around them.